Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Phil. And uh, open brackets, insert interesting detail, close brackets. So there you know. Um, It's very great to be with you this morning. Um, And we're continuing our teaching series uh, that Viv started last week about resilient discipleship and what Charlotte just shared a little about as well. Um, I personally am fascinated, have been for a long time, about the word resilience. Um, As Viv said last week, a resilient material is one that after a period of stress or uh, after a period of stress or force is applied to it, it returns to its original shape. So in that sense, a rubber is resilient. It will bend when it's stretched, but it will return back. Or a tree is resilient. It will move and it will sway in the wind. But when the wind dies down, when the storm dies down, it will return back to our original shape. And as we open this morning, this teaching, it gets me thinking, what is the shape of the disciples that we're hoping to be? What is the shape we're hoping to return to after difficult seasons, after this difficult season that we've been in? Do we even know what that shape is? And if we don't, how can we become resilient? And I think we could do a lot worse than define that shape as a gospel good news centred life. And I think that is why Paul's letter to the Roman church where we're anchoring this series is a wonderful place to start. Because to many, Paul's letter to the Roman church is the deepest and most profound explanation of the good news of Jesus the King. So this morning we're going to re, well not kick off the series, start this series in Romans by looking at the first two chapters Uh, And this brings us front and centre with the teaching topic of sin. So that's right, this morning is very light-hearted and full of lols. (laughs) It's actually my birthday coming up this week. um, And when Viv asked if I wanted to teach from one of the hardest books in the Bible, on the hardest topics in the Bible, of course I said yes. Um, I don't know what tells you about me, how I spent my bank holiday weekend reading commentaries of Romans. Um, I'll let you decide what that tells about me. But in all seriousness, there's a lot of content coming at you this morning. I hope not too much. But that's because this is a really important two chapters, um, really important and sometimes difficult topic. So if you do have a Bible open or with you, I'd strongly encourage you to open it now to Romans chapters one and two. It's in the, the New Testament Um, And do take any notes if you find that valuable. So I say this to set out how and why Paul talks. Yeah, pages in the wrong order. Not done that before. Let's go back. Um, Where do we begin? How do we look at a book like Romans? Uh, Well, we do always begin by looking at the context and the when and the why and the who. The letter uh, that Paul wrote to the church in Rome was one of, um, written by Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers. 
And Romans was one of the latest letters that he wrote in his life, around 59 AD. And it came around 20 years after his life as a messenger of the gospel of Jesus as he saw it. And that's why to many Romans is a culmination, a powerful explanation of a life spent thinking through, preaching and living out the good news as he saw it. So our question is why? What was going on in the church in Rome at that time? And why did he write them this letter? Now, the churches in Rome, like most of the new churches um, after Jesus, were founded most likely by Jews who had accepted Jesus as a promised Messiah. And so all the churches and the church in Rome was the same, began with a Jewish flavour and culture. Yes, they were followers of Jesus, but they were still reorientating their beliefs and their religious practice around the previous understandings of the scriptures and their traditions. However, in around 49 AD, some 10 years before this letter was written, the Jews got expelled by Rome. They got kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius, including the Jewish Christians. So all of a sudden, these founding Christians were gone from the churches. So what did that leave? What that left was the smaller number of so-called Gentile Christians. These are Christians who had converted to Christ from non-Jewish backgrounds, accepted him as King and Messiah. But it was now up to them to lead, to build, and to form this church. And they did so without any Jewish background and very little understanding of the Jewish cultural history. Now, fast forward five years, Emperor Claudius dies, his declaration ceases to be in force, and in 54 AD, all of the Jewish Christians suddenly return to the city of Rome, and they return to their churches, only it's a little different. Suddenly, all their norms, all their theological perspectives, all the behaviours are different, and it's now being led by the Gentile Christians. Hashtag awkward. Now, of course, being the church like us today, they totally got it right, didn't they? They came together in unity to form a single body, putting their differences aside and trying to focus on Jesus. Not so much. What you had going on in Rome was an immense power struggle between these two groups of Christians disagreeing at odds, with another, at odds with one another and ultimately judging each other in negative ways. In the one camp, you had the returning Jewish Christians and their belief in the importance of the law, the historical relationship and covenant with Israel in particular. And they were there judging the Gentile Christians for not being as good and holy as them. And in the other camp, you had the now more powerful Gentile Christians reveling in the freedom of the gospel of grace with no need for any effort or behavior on their part. And they were now judging the Jewish Christians for maintaining any kind of Jewish practice or behavior or norms. And I say this to set out why Paul talked about sin in chapters one and two but also because knowing just that important context is going to be one of the most helpful insights in you as you read through Romans on your own in the next few weeks and in your home groups. As you read Romans, you'll see direct references to Jews and other times to Gentiles. You'll see them then them both referred to together. You'll see Paul referring to one group as the strong and one group as the weak. You'll see lots of interpretation of Jewish Hebrew scriptures and lots of calls for unity. 
And therefore, knowing that will make a lot more sense of you understanding one of the core purposes of Romans, why Paul is laying out the gospel in the way that he does, because he's systematically trying to address both of these groups' thoughts, attitudes and concerns to unite this church under the true gospel. Now, let me say from the outset that there is so much in these first two chapters of Romans, both about sin and other really powerful topics. Some I don't claim this morning to fully understand. Some I just don't have the time to explain. So what we're going to do is lightly sketch through three key areas. The first one is the two pathways of sin that Paul lays out. The second one is why sin then is such a problem for us. And then the third one, why and how a healthy awareness of sin can make us resilient in our discipleship. So we're going to start off a little more theological um, and then we're going to very much apply it to our lives now. So let's begin with the two pathways of sin in Romans 1 and 2. And again, let's anchor ourselves in what we already know. There are two groups Paul is thinking of in this letter, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, and they're judging each other and feeling superior to one another. And I agree with those scholars who see Paul, therefore, talking about sin in two ways to generally address these two groups. So let me just walk you through these two pathways and see um, how they manifest. The first pathway is in chapter 1, and it looks a little like this. Starting in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, Paul writes this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So within here, there's two little ideas. The first one, they neither glorified him. In other words, they rejected his status and authority over them. And secondly, neither did they give thanks to him. In other words, they rejected life as a gift and chose instead to use it as something for their own purposes. So the first pathway begins quite simply with the rejection of God's authority and the distortion of the gift of life. Paul moves the pathway on then in verses 24 and 25 and he says, Therefore, in response to that, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshipped and created and served created things rather than the creator. Paul essentially lays out here that he allowed, that God allows people to reject his authority and give status of life. And the result is that satisfying their own desires for their own purposes becomes their central drive. Paul refers particularly here to sexual desire, but as we'll see in a moment, I think this is one example of something a lot broader. The final step then in this first pathway is in verse 28. And Paul says that what happens next is their thought life becomes corrupted. He puts it this way, furthermore, so he's continuing the argument, just as they did not see it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over, again, gave them over to their free choice, to a depraved mind, so that they would do what they ought not to have done. Paul is saying again here that the rejection of the authority, 
the embrace of self-centered desire as an object of worship will now infiltrate into their thought life and every decision they and we make. Paul goes on to list some of the results then of this thought life, some of which we read and seem very far to you and I. But some, as I read them right now, if we're honest with ourselves, they're a pretty good diagnosis of how we are at our worst on a week-by-week basis. He talks about the result in greed, in envy, in deceit, in being boastful, in gossip, in being heartless. But the key context here is that Paul isn't actually telling them anything they didn't know. These kinds of words were exactly how Jews and Jewish Christians specifically thought about another group in society. I wonder if you can guess who that group was. It was the Gentiles. So this opening may well be Paul laying out, yes, the truth of sin, but he's laying out the particular case of sin against the Gentile Christians more stereotypically, to which the Jewish Christians were probably nodding along saying, yes, that's exactly how they are. And that's why we're better than them. But as Paul is maybe sketching out this traditional view of the sin of the Gentiles, I think we would do well to pause and let these words diagnose us. Do we also reject God's authority over us? Are we worshipping our own desires for our own purposes? What are the thoughts, habits that are arising from putting ourselves in the centre of our lives. But then Paul doesn't stop there. That's the first pathway, a very quick summary, if you like, of chapter one. He then goes on in chapter two and lays out a second pathway to sin. And perhaps now it's the Jewish Christians he's now turning the tables on. The pathway is a little less linear, so let me sketch it for you in four steps. And as I do, again, just notice the us and them attitude that he is clearly addressing. This second pathway begins with comparison of your behavior against another. He starts in 2 verse 1. He says, you therefore, you have no excuse who pass judgment on someone else. Then if you jump slightly to verse 17, he seems to talk about the results. And the results of that judgment is self-esteem and pride. And he says again, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God. And the results of that self-esteem and pride becomes the willful ignorance of our sin. And he says in 2 verse 5, because because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in a day of God's wrath. That word stubbornness is probably quite key. It's used a lot in the Old Testament about how the Israelites, the Jews, turned against God time and time again. And this pathway finally ends with, you'll never guess, the rejection of God's authority. And he says it again in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, see that us and them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? He's saying when you do that pathway of sin, you're just as much rejecting the authority of God over your own life. Now, there is so much that could be said about those two pathways in these first two chapters. 
And let's just quickly run back that second pathway. It starts with the comparison of sin. It moves to pride. It moves then to the ignorance of our own sin and it moves to the rejection of God's authority. And this was the Jewish Christian sin that Paul saw in Rome. It's interesting that he has no big name sin behaviours in the same way as chapter one, but simply a dangerous pathway that leads to that exact same rejection of the authority of God over our lives. Two groups of people, two pathways, two manifestations, but one heart of sin, the rejection of God. And if you find that a little tricky to get your head around, then think of these two pathways as Paul laying out the two sons in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The first pathway is the out in the open sin of the younger son, rejecting the father to his face for a life of self-serving pleasure. And the second pathway is the subtle sin of the older son's self-righteousness and his rejection of the father for his reacceptance of the brother. I don't know where you sit this morning in applying those two pathways to your life, but I wonder if any of them convict you this morning. In these chapters, the opening chapters of Romans, Paul is clear that neither is worse than the other. Both lead to a breakdown in our relationships to one another and our relationship with God. But if that's Paul's laying out of the reality of the pathways of sin in Romans 1 and 2, the question we need to address now is why is sin such a problem anyway? Because unless sin was a problem in Paul's minds, how would this drive them to the gospel? How would it drive them to joy? How would it drive them to unity? To begin to answer this question, we have to take a few steps back from Romans and go back a little into some of the Hebrew scriptures, that is the Old Testament. And we need to learn that in the Jewish mind, God's coming judgment of sin was great news. That sounds so alien to us, but it really, really was. And it was great news because the whole hope of the Jewish people, the hope Jesus began to fulfill, the hope that you and I now live in, was the return of the kingdom, the reign of God on earth as it was intended. A return of God himself to be among his people and bring this new kingdom of peace, justice and righteousness. To take us a little on this journey, I'm going to do a little almost meditation with us now. I'm going to slowly read through three prophetic scriptures, two from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament, all about the promise of this new kingdom, this permanent reign of God, this intervention of God against evil, injustice and oppression. And what I want to invite you to do is just listen. And just really listen. Invite God to speak to you now. Close your eyes, if you like, and just see what stirs in you as I read these words. First one is from 2 Samuel, chapter 7. And God is speaking through the prophet Nathan. Now then, tell my servant David, I took you from the pasture, 
from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. And now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest people on earth. And I will provide a place for my people and I will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore and I will give you rest from all of your suffering. And the second one from Isaiah's prophetic poetry. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge what he sees with his eyes or decides, decide what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And finally, Jesus' disciple John in his own prophetic vision in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I wonder if anything happened within you as you heard those promises. I wonder what rose up inside of you. I don't know the answer to those questions, but the Jewish and early Christians people's hearts would have sang when they heard those words. And ours are supposed to as well. Because they describe our home. They describe where we are meant to live. We deeply desire the promised new kingdom and its life of righteousness, peace and joy. This is a deep goodness of our desire when placed under the authority of God. And we yearn for it. And we yearn for it because we see the opposite of it here and now in the world around us. But crucially, as Paul lays out in Romans 1 and 2, we don't just see the opposite in the world around us. If we look even a little closely, we see the opposite in ourselves.
Because here is a clear reality of the coming kingdom. This kingdom that our hearts burn for and where our souls feel at home. Left to our own raw state, we just don't fit within it. We, you and I, all of us, we are the ones who have chosen to reject God's authority and his way of doing things. We are the ones who have chosen the self-serving worship of desire. We've chosen to play the role of God over our own lives and of others. We are the ones who have hurt one another. We are the ones who are causing suffering. We are the ones that cause division. And we can't help ourselves. The Bible simultaneously talks about sin as being something we choose and something we are then trapped within. When it comes to the full coming of this new reign of Jesus the King, who began that new kingdom when he came to earth, he will come wearing righteousness as his belt and faithfulness as his clothing. And he will judge justly and we will be found wanting. Unfaithful to God, unfaithful to one another. An undeniable mismatch for the kingdom that is our true home. Paul puts it this way in chapter 2 of Romans, verse 16. The righteous judgment will take place on the day that God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my good news declares. But that is not the end of the story. Oh, wonderful God, no. That is only the middle. So what is the end of the story? So let's come back to our theme of resilience. How does knowing Paul's clarity of sin in Romans 1 and 2 help us become more resilient disciples? There are so many examples, but let me just give you one. Knowing the reality of our sin emphasizes God's love. One of the most famous teachings of the Bible was Jesus' joyful declaration that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that anyone who trusts in him will not perish but have eternal life. So remember, remember that reality that in our raw, sin-broken state, we simply could not return home to this kingdom of justice and peace? Well, Jesus tells us that God loves you and I so much, he was going to do whatever it took to get us home. He was going to find a way to make up for our sin, for our rejection of him, for our abuse of one another. And not by downplaying its significance or saying it was never really a problem, but by facing its seriousness head on. This was what the voluntary death, death of Jesus on the cross achieved. The forgiveness of sin, the paying of our debts, the freedom from our captivity. It is the father heart welcome of our unrepentant and broke of our repentant and broken selves, embracing us halfway down the road and telling us no matter what we've done, we can still come home. Tim Keller puts it like this. 
We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Because being aware of our sin enables us to become more resilient disciples. Because only the reality that we were locked out of the new kingdom empowers the good news that we have been given a way back in. Say that again. It's only the reality that we were locked out of the new kingdom that empowers the good news that we have been given a way back in. We're going to close our teaching this morning with taking communion. This is a spiritual practice of confession that Jesus himself taught us to do in remembrance of him. So if you'd like to have your bread and your wine or your juice ready in a moment, I'll read Jesus' words from Matthew. But as I read these words and we take communion in our own homes together and the band come back up to play, my invitation to you is to spend a few moments with God and ask him to take you on the full journey of the practice of confession. At his heart, confession is not about focusing on sin and feeling guilty, but about focusing on love and reorienting ourselves to Jesus' call to kingdom life. Richard Foster puts it this way, if confession is viewed as a way of earning forgiveness, then it is dangerous. But if it is seen as an opportunity to pause for a moment and consider the seriousness of our sin, then it has genuine merit. God is calling into being a church that can openly confess its frail humanity and know the forgiving and empowering grace of Christ. Honesty leads to confession, and confession leads to change. So as we take communion this morning, perhaps position your prayer to God in three simple stages. Firstly, invite him, make it his agenda to make you aware of the sinful habits you retain in your life this week or this month. Your self-centeredness, our worship of our self-focused desire. But then second, ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to rise up in you the joy of knowing you have and are forgiven. You have been made clean and you have been welcomed home. And then finally, ask God afresh for the opportunity in your life to be transformed into Christ-likeness and the hope-filled promise of the coming kingdom. So we'll finish with the words of Jesus as he's had his last supper before he gave his life on the cross. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, 
he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks for that, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I will not drink from this vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.